Good afternoon. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Very happy to be here with you guys again. Uh, if you have been here for the last few weeks, um, Pastor Mark challenged us to come and, and pay attention to the words of Jesus and see what impact that has on your heart. Uh, but today what I want to do is um, something a little bit different because I want you to pay attention not only to the words of Jesus, but to the actions of Jesus, especially when he doesn't say much. Um, I want to study uh, the message that he was trying to send to his disciples then and to all of us now through the first miracle that he performed, okay? That miracle is found in the gospel according to John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So I'm going to read it. It says this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this passage uh, has been used uh, many times to teach different lessons uh, that, that you can actually draw from the passage. I have heard this passage preached to uh, present arguments in favor or against drinking wine. And even though you can get some lessons about that from this passage, that is not the main objective of, of this passage. Um, I have used this passage more than once uh, to, to perform weddings. And to teach you in the wedding how when unforeseen situations happen, you know, when you turn to Jesus, he will, with his divine intervention, change things. And that is also true. Uh, but again, it's not the object of this passage. The, the key of this passage is found in verse 11. Uh, I'm going to read it again. John says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cain and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It is very interesting that John called each one of the seven miracles that Jesus performs that are registered in his book, he calls them signs, which means these miracles were not performed for the benefit of the recipient of these miracles. See, the main objective of turning water into wine was not just to help the bridegroom you know, the bride and the guest of this wedding. When he heals the son of the nobleman later on in chapter four, you know, it's not just to help this noble man or when he heals the man that is sitting by the pool waiting for someone to put him in, it's not just to give him back his health. 
you know, when he feeds the 5,000 with the lunch of a kid, it's not just to calm the hunger of these people. Or when he walks on water, it's not just to come and calm the storm for the disciples. Or the most impactful one, when he brings Lazarus back to life, it's not just to give Lazarus life. These are signs, which means they are supposed to point the disciples that were witnesses to these miracles. And the readers, is at us, who got to read about this because these disciples who wrote it down point us to something that goes beyond this miracle, something that is a lot more significant than the ability to perform them. See, these miracles accredit Jesus as someone that was sent from God, that he spoke on behalf of God. Now, many people before Jesus spoke on behalf of God, all the prophets of the Old Testament. But in the case of Jesus, these miracles point first to his person, but then they point at his work, what he came to do on this earth, which was to inaugurate the arrival of the kingdom of God and to redeem his people. Now, it's very important to understand this because it's kind of strange that his first miracle, you know, was, you know, he, he performed it in a wedding. It, it almost sounds profane that what he did for his first miracle is make wine, you know? So you will see how this turning water into wine is a lot more deep than, than it seems at first sight. So let's see the context of the miracle first. First two verses say, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. At this moment, Jesus has only called four or five people. He doesn't have the 12th jet. Uh, and we can assume that uh, whoever was getting married was at least a friend of one of his disciples because both Philip and Nathaniel were from Cana of Galilee. So most likely they were friends with these people, so they're all invited. Uh, but if you notice, Mary, the mother of Jesus, seems to have some influence in this wedding because she gives an order to the servants and they obey. They do what she says. We can also deduce by the amount of water jars that they have there and the size of the jars that this is a big wedding. You know, they have six jars that combined can hold up to 180 gallons of water for their purification rites. So that means that they're expecting a lot of people. I don't know if uh, you have been in a small town wedding. Cana of Galilee was a small town, a poor town. No? If, if in Mexico, at least, I don't know how they happened here. But I have been to small town ways in Mexico, and when they, you know, have a wedding in the town, the whole town shows up. You know, whether they're invited or not, you know, everybody shows up, you know. We were invited once to this wedding, and it was just crazy. They had this big room full of tables. People was, you know, seated at all these tables, and we were there crowded with our kids. And when we left the wedding, we realized outside was the rest of the town waiting, and every time somebody stood up, they came in. You know, and this is kind of what happens here, you know. There's a lot of people there. Now, we know that the weddings in those days were very long. You know, they usually lasted for a whole week, which means that when the Jewish people celebrated, they celebrated, okay? They had a party for a week. But in the middle of this wedding, something unthinkable happens. They run out of wine. Now, this is going to create two problems for the bridegroom because he's the host. He's the responsible one, okay? First of all, it's a complete shame that he ran out of one of the most important elements of the wedding. See, the Bible calls wine a gift from God to cheer the heart of men. So it's supposed to be the cheering part of the wedding, and all of a sudden, they run out of wine. Now, they don't tell us why did they run out of wine. Maybe they didn't foresee how much wine they had to have. 
Or maybe, as it happened in the party that I went one time, they received a lot more guests than they were expected. Some commentaries I read said that uh, the wine that the bridegroom served was so good in the beginning that they ran, you know, they, they drank faster than he expected. But the point is, he ran out of wine, okay? Now, the second possible problem for this bridegroom is there is evidence in these Jewish ancient communities that if something like this happened, the guest could actually legally sue the bridegroom. This is how serious they took hospitality then. You know, the guest expected to be there for a week and be fed and given wine and given shelter for a week. And if in the middle of the wedding, somebody took the mic and said, guess what? You know, <laughs> party's over. They could actually sue this person, okay? So the Bible says that uh, the mother of Jesus was there. She hears what's going on and she feels compassion for the bridegroom and she goes to Jesus. Uh, we have to also keep in mind that the only person there besides Jesus, that knows who Jesus is, is Mary. Remember, Mary was told by an angel. You know, when, when she, you know, she told she was going to be pregnant, they said, you are going to have the son of God. And she has seen him grow up. Can you imagine being the mother of Jesus? To have a son who never lies, always does his homework, you know, washes his dishes, makes his bed, cleans his mess, I mean, without you having to tell him. You know, she knows this is a different kid. So she knows exactly who he is. And, and he goes to him and says, they have no wine. Notice that she doesn't tell him what to do. She doesn't say do something about it. She just expresses the feeling there is no wine. You know, it's just a fact. But Jesus knows his mother. And he interprets this as his mother telling him to do something. And we can tell that by the answer of Jesus in verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, there's three interesting things about this answer. First of all, he answers to her and calls her woman. And I don't know how it went in your house when you were little, but if my mom said, Marco, do this, and I said, woman, what does this have to do with me? She would have given me one, you know? So it sounds like he was being rude, but in reality, he's not. You know, the word that he uses is actually a title of respect. It's the same way that he addresses her when he's at the cross and he's telling her, woman, this is your son, John, now take care of my mom. You know, he uses the same word. It's the same word that he uses uh, when he talks to the Samaritan woman at the well. Woman, will you give me some water? So he's not being rude. He's actually being polite. But the next phrase is the one that causes a lot of controversy because he says to her, what does this have to do with me? See, that phrase in the Greek has a very strange construction. Actually, this is one of the rare verses that if you read it in different versions of the Bible, in every one is translated different because the construction is so complex. So if you go to the uh, New International Version, it says, why do you involve me? The New King James Bible says, what does your concern have to do with me? The New American Standard Bible says, what business do you have with me? Because what he literally says, if you translate the Greek literal, it says, what to me, even you. It's a very strange way to speak. What to me, even you. But what he's saying to her is this. What do you have to do with me? Why are you 
telling me these things. See, there's a lot of controversy because it may sound like he's just being rude, but in reality, this goes to a much deeper subject in regards to his ministry. Do you remember um, last week, uh, Pastor Paul preached on Luke chapter 2 and, and told us the story about when uh, Mary and Joseph leave Jerusalem and travel for a day, leaving Jesus behind. And then when they notice that he's not in the caravan where they're traveling, they go back to find him. And they find him at the temple. And Mary talks to him and says, why have you done this to us? We've been anxiously searching for you. And he says, don't you know that I have to be about my father's business? But the last line in that passage, see, it says this. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. Other version says, submissive to them. See, at that moment of his life, Jesus understood that for as long as he was a kid, a teenager under the roof of his parents, he had to obey his parents. God might be his father and he knew who he was, but he was there to be raised by his parents. So he becomes submissive to his parents. He's subjected to them. And we know that Joseph gets out of the picture very fast. So he was obedient to Mary all these years. So what's happening here is that what he's saying is as of this moment, when I'm going to start my ministry, I am not going to receive guidance from anyone that it's not my father in heaven, not even from you, mom. No human agenda is going to change my path in a loving way. He's telling her, you don't get to tell me what to do with these powers that God gave me, you know? So back off. Small parenthesis here. If um, you're like me and have Catholic family members, Catholic friends, this passage is very important to understand clearly. Because in my research for this passage, I found that there are some Catholic priests that use this precise passage to teach that if you need something from Jesus, the one that you have to go to is the Virgin Mary. And she will intervene for you with Jesus. What Jesus is doing here is exactly the opposite. He's telling Mary, you don't get to say what the agenda is going to be. Only my Father in heaven guides. And then he says these words to her, my hour has not yet come. These are words that we're going to hear Jesus repeat over and over. His disciples never understand exactly what he's talking about. And let alone this time, that is the first time that he has said these words. He's talking about the hour that is coming when he's going to glorify his father by dying on the cross. So, you know, obviously it goes further past that to the resurrection when his father is glorified and he proves who Jesus is by bringing him back to life. But what's revealed every time that Jesus says this phrase is that he lived with the weight on his heart knowing that that hour was going to come, that he was going to glorify his father, but to a very high cost to himself, his own life. So my hour has not yet come. In a loving way, Jesus is telling his mother, don't rush me. There's a lot of things that need to happen before that time. But all those things are going to happen at the pace, at the time that my father is going to set. And no one, friend, enemy, family member, or even you can tell me what to do. Regardless, 
Jesus sees the predicament of this person who's going to take action. And Mary teaches us another beautiful lesson because even though Jesus has told her off in a way, she has faith that he's going to do what is right. So, you know, leaving completely the initiative to Jesus of what he's going to do, she looks at the servants in verse 5 and says, do whatever he tells you. That phrase is the briefest and best sermon that has ever been preached in the history of the world. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, just do it. Don't think about it. Don't question it. Obey. See, sadly, we all know that oftentimes what Jesus tells us to do doesn't make much sense to us. Sometimes it's confusing. You know, I can just imagine the servants when he says, refill the jars with water because they started off full when the wedding started. And people have been purifying themselves with this water, so they are probably half full. And the servants must have thought, like, again? What for? I mean, the party's half done. They have, we have enough water. But he says, fill the jars. And see, if, if, if we know something about God, is that he rarely gives us light for tomorrow, for the future. He gives you enough light about today, the step that you need to take today, but he doesn't tell you what to do after or what's going to happen after. And that's what confuses us. You know, it's like when, when God tells the people of Israel, when they were with Joshua at the edge of the river Jordan, and, and, and he says to Joshua, cross the river. And the river is overflowing. It's at its highest with super strong currents. And Joshua must have looked at God and was like, are you sure? I mean, it's going to take us across the river. But, but I can't swim across the river. And the moment that the first Levite puts a foot inside the water, the water stops. But he didn't tell him ahead of time. He just tells you, obey. Because what pleases God is our faith that we show in obedience, especially when we don't understand what he's asking. I think that it would be easier for us to obey when he tells us what to do if we remember always the fact that God is eternal and all-knowing. He's always been here. And you and I, our life in the scope of time in the universe lasts like a second. You know, the Bible says that we're like a flower that is grown in the morning and by the afternoon it's disappeared and the grass around it doesn't even remember that there was a flower there. That's our life. But God's eternal. So try to compare that, for example, how, how easy or hard is it to try to explain the logic of your decisions to a three-year-old? Do they obey immediately? They question you. They don't understand your logic. Why? Because they haven't lived long enough to be mature enough to understand saying, oh, of course, wise father. I know why. You know, they don't. But we're the same. God's eternal. All knowing. See, he knows what everyone is thinking. He knows the actions that you're going to take and the ramification of every one of those actions and how are they going to combine throughout the whole history of the universe. He knows everything. And he says to you, do this. And you go like, but why? When he knows everything. So Mary gives us the best possible advice. What he tells you, do it. We get the first hint at the reason for this miracle in verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. I don't know if you have seen 
images of the pottery of the time, most of them were made out of mud that then was baked and becomes a clay pot, okay? But that's not what they're talking about here. They're talking about stone jars. The Jewish people make these special stone jars that were specifically designed to hold the water that was going to be used for the purification rites. Why? Because in their mind, if they put the water to purify themselves in the, in the clay pots, the water was going to fill the, the, the jars and then little particles of dirt might be loose from the pot and contaminate the water. And in their minds, if the water was even a little bit dirty, it wasn't going to purify them. They were not going to be clean enough. This was a Jewish wedding, so every single person there had to go through ceremonies and rituals of purifications, at least before every meal, everyone had to wash their hands and their feet, okay? This is why most likely the jars were no longer full, and Jesus has to ask them to refill them. But think of this. Those ceremonies of purifications point to the rules, the order of the Old Testament, okay? That's, that's what they mean. So when Jesus comes and announces the arrival of the kingdom of God in the New Testament, what he uses as a metaphor is wine. He actually calls it new wine. You remember in Matthew chapter 9, he's talking about the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, he says something that confuses a lot of people. See, in Matthew 9, 17, he says, he says neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins and so both are preserved. What is he talking about? See, this represents a change of order from the Old Testament that will go now beyond water to a higher level that he called new wine. Do you, you remember the dispute that he has with the Pharisees when John the Baptist comes and he dresses like a prophet, you know, and, and, and he comes in the spirit of Elijah and he's eating wild stuff. You know, he comes in, in, in a spirit of austerity. He doesn't drink, he barely eats. But then Jesus comes and he's hanging out with sinners and he's going to banquets and he's drinking wine and eating food. And the Pharisees call him a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus later on explains that it was appropriate for John to abstain because the bridegroom had not arrived yet. But now that he has arrived, it's time to celebrate. The point that Jesus is making is the celebration of the arrival of the kingdom of God with the bridegroom announcing it. It's starting and we need to celebrate it. And I am going to provide the provision to celebrate it with new wine. That is what he's doing. Now, there is a lot of people that have a lot of problem with the involvement on, of wine in this situation. Actually, um, I read some commentaries that says that uh, to justify the drinking of the wine in the wedding, they say that Jewish people had to drink wine because the water was not good to drink. That's false. The water was perfectly fine. You know, Jewish people, you know, drank wine, but they reserved it for special occasions, banquets, you know, the, the Passover was celebrated with wine, and like in this case, weddings. But the Jewish people also had very strict rules against getting drunk. Laws that are repeated later in the New Testament. Now, why are those laws in the law? Because some people say, no, it wasn't really wine, it was diluted, it doesn't. They were there because the wine could get you drunk. 
Actually, as I said earlier, there are some people that think that the wine ran out because they were drinking too much too fast. But if that had been the case, if the problem is that they were drinking too much, why didn't Jesus take the time to teach them a lesson about abusing wine? And instead of doing that, what does he do? He, he creates more. Let's look at the miracle, verses 7 to 9. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim, which is a very important piece of information because there's also people that trying to reject the possibility of the miracle. They say that they didn't really fill them all the way up, and somebody added wine, so they all thought that it was wine that he had made. You know, I even heard a pastor say once that what he did is created the purest and best possible water that existed. That's even better than wine. So the miracle of Jesus was to turn water into water. Anyway, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came, though the servants who had uh, drawn the water knew. I'm going to stop there for a minute. Let me ask you this question. At what time did he perform the miracle? When did he do this? Did you notice that Jesus didn't say a single word? There was no display, no show, you know, no, you know, I was talking to Karina, my wife, like when we see the movies today with this, these characters that have special powers and all of a sudden they're going to do something like incredible, they start like, no? Jesus performs this miracle and no one in that wedding noticed that there was something out of the ordinary. The only witnesses to this are the servants who pulled out what they thought was water and the disciples that are there with Jesus. He didn't even have to speak. Who can do that? Only God can wish for something to happen like water turning to wine and the water obeys. This is when John says, this is how he revealed his glory. And I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about the amount of wine that he made. Because he created about 180 gallons of excellent wine. All Bible scholars are in agreement on this one. And they say that that represents the abundance of the grace of God. Do you understand what's happening there? Do you see the significance of what's happened? See, for, for the Jewish people, a lot of things were dirty. You know, they were contaminated. Like you and I are Gentiles. If you were not born a Jew by birth, if you're not descended directly from the line of Abraham, you would be a Gentile and you would be dirty. If they entered in contact with you, they would be immediately contaminated. You know, there were foods that were dirty. If they worked, you know, if they walked, they would get dirty. And then they would have to constantly be purifying themselves. But Jesus comes and says, I am bringing something new. I am bringing for you a new way of purifications. Those days where you needed water to be purified are over. Now I'm going to give you my purity. I'm going to give you my cleanliness. I'm going to transform you and clean you from the heart from the inside out. 
See, this, this is the, the, the problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees. If you remember for the Pharisees, all the cleanliness had to be external. All, all they cared about was how it looked. This is why Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. He said, yeah, you look like a tomb that was, has been bleached, but inside there's rotten bones. Your heart is rotten. You know, it doesn't matter how much you clean on the outside if your heart remains rotten. You know, you are not supposed to behave correctly by fighting with all your will to do the right things. Your heart needs to be transformed so it follows me. So it does what it's supposed to do when the spirit is feeding it. You will start having spiritual appetites. But I am trying to transform your heart. This is why Jesus spent a lot of time with what they consider impure people. Sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors. He cleaned them. With his relationship and his teaching, he changed their heart and they became pure. Nothing external happened. Everything is internal. So what Jesus is saying here is, it doesn't matter what's in your past. You cannot allow your past to give you your identity. I want to give you a new identity. Confess, repent, and run to me. But he opened a new path. A new path that goes through him and is inaugurated with the new wine that it's a lot better than the old wine because he doesn't want you to have to be fighting against that old heart. He wants you to have a new one. This was definitely a miracle and the miracle fulfilled his job. Not only did it save the honor of the bridegroom and cover the needs of all the you know, guests of this party, but by performing this miracle in front of his disciples, the Bible says that they believe, says this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan, Galilee, and manifested his glory. This is something you have to remember. Everything that God does, everything that Jesus does is for his glory, everything. This universe exists for his glory. The, the, the very fact that you are here today, if your heart has been transformed, that's for his glory. You know, we don't come here every Sunday just to feel peace in our heart and be comforted. That's a side effect of coming here to glorify God. Everything is for his glory. He says, and his disciples believed in him. That means they saw how significant it was what he had done. And, and remember this, the book of John was written approximately 60 years after the resurrection. I think that John is writing here looking back to things, saying after we saw all these signs that he performed and then we remember all the teachings that he had given us and then we saw him after the resurrection and then we were filled with the Holy Spirit and then everything down on us and we finally believed. But he started by making these signs that not only pointed at him, but to the new kingdom, the new, the, the, the new wine that continues expanding, fermenting. You understand what's the deal with this new wine and the wine skins? See, when they first made wine, they would put it in a new wine skin and the wine would start fermenting. And as it fermented, it expanded. But since the, the wine skin was new, was fresh, then it had a lot of elasticity and it kept stretching and stretching and stretching until the wine was fully fermented. But the wine skin would be stretched to its limits. If you then empty that wine and put new wine in there, it would start fermenting. And since the wineskin would be fully stretched, it would burst and spill the wine. So, so what Jesus is saying is the new kingdom, the kingdom of God, 
It's fermenting and it's expanding. I am announcing to you that something new is coming to the world, but it needs to fall into renewed hearts. The old hearts won't do. This is why the Bible promises to give us a new heart. You know, something that is a lot better than water. And it's going to bring us a blessing that you cannot imagine because the purification, he does it in your heart and it comes from him through his blood. Remember this, Jesus used the wine during the Passover as an analogy of his blood who gives us life, which means the redemption that Jesus performed for us was represented in the first miracle. With this miracle, he was sending us the message. As of this moment, everything is going to change because I'm bringing something new. And the most wonderful thing are the words that the master of the feast says at the end. And this is something that, listen, if you truly walk with God, if you truly have communion, faith, and trust in God and follow him in everything that he says, you're going to experience this, that this person said. He said, everyone serves the good wine first, but you have kept the good wine until now. What does that mean? See, when you first come to know Jesus and you understand the incredible exchange that he did, this perfect, beautiful being, you know, that lived the perfect, obedient life and he was willing to die for me, a sinner, carry with my sin, carry with my punishment and now I'm free and I can drop all the load, you know, and live a free life. Do you feel, this is amazing. But if you continue with him, then after a year or two, you start realizing that it goes deeper than that and that he's in heaven and he's there intervening for you that even if you trip and you recognize he still forgives you and he'll still love you and it does, it's not what you do but what he already did, then you go like, this is getting better and better. But when you, when you keep going and after a number of years, all of a sudden, life gets hard and it hits you, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden, you realize that he truly is there to strengthen you. That even in the darkest moments, if you go to him, he's there and he's your peace and he's your strength. And the people of God surround you and strengthen you and love you. Then you go like, this is incredible. It keeps getting better. And wait until you get to heaven. Because the Bible says we're going to spend an eternity getting to know God. Because that's how long it's going to take to get to know the fullness of God. So this is incredible. Every time you're going to say, you kept the good wine until now. So we are mere human beings living in a fallen world. And it's going to happen to all of us at one point or another that life all of a sudden is going to rip the joy out of your heart. And what you have to do when that happens is come to Jesus and talk to him. Father, I'm exhausted. I have no joy in my heart. I ran out of wine. And what he will say is, I have new wine for you. I can make more wine for you. I have a new purpose. I have even newer relationship. I have a newer life for you. Come to me if you are tired. Come to me if you run out of wine because I will give you my new wine that will clean you from the inside out 
And he's going to bless you for the rest of your life. Regardless of what you face. Because the promise, remember, is not you follow Jesus and everything is going to be okay. The promise is you follow him. And regardless of what you face, he will be there to strengthen you and fill your heart with peace and with his love. That was the announcement that Jesus came to send through these signs. And when he turned this water into wine, the new has arrived, the old order has passed, and from now on, the one that purifies you, it's me. And the Bible says his disciples believed in him. Actually, the word in, in Greek, means into. So what he said is his disciples believed into Jesus. They took a deep dive of faith into Jesus. And that is my hope for all of us. Because that's the, the meaning of the book. You know, at the end of the book in chapter 20, John wrote these words. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. An abundant life while you're here on earth. And an incredible, joyful life for all of eternity in his presence. That's what he was announcing without even speaking. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you for displaying your glory before us through your word, that you will allow us to see a glimpse of that glory that one day we're going to see face to face. We thank you, Lord, because we know that you have the compassion to intervene when we have situations and we need you. And we thank you, Lord, for your promise of transforming our hearts. Thank you for bringing the kingdom of God to us. And thank you for using us to expand that kingdom. Please, Father, just keep guiding us and strengthening us. And it's in your beautiful name that we thank you and ask you all these things.